Father, etched into the stone on the walls of this church are the words, a house of prayer for all people. And so we're here, we've gathered, and we believe by faith that your spirit is also here. So now we thank you, Father, and as we engage and study and dialogue in your word, we just pray that you would grant us clarity, for we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I want to share with you 10 of life's toughest questions, according to Reader's Digest. Remember that magazine? They also have a website, and they did a survey of their readers, and they actually have 25 of life's toughest questions. But just for time's sake today, I'm just going to share with you 10 of life's toughest questions. And why don't we do this, please? If we get to a question that you particularly resonate with, give me an amen. Can you do that? So if there's something you resonate with, you're feeling that question, give me an amen. And for those of you watching online, since we cannot hear your amen, let us know in the chat room, in the chat area. So in other words, if you're watching on Facebook Live, let us know in the chat. Or if you're on our website, pmchurch.org, let us know in the chat area as well. Okay, you all ready? Are you all ready? Let's go. Top 10 of life's toughest questions according to Reader's Digest. Number 10, do you have to love your job? What do you think about that? I heard an amen on that one. You know, sometimes a job is just a job. Hopefully you love your job, but sometimes you just need a job. Okay, number nine, this one seems a little bit abstract, but here it is. When is your future behind you? When is your future behind you? I told you, it's a little bit abstract, but I think some people perhaps get it. Number eight, a lot of us identify with this one. Where do traffic jams come from? Amen. You're on the road, all of a sudden everything backs up, and it's all because people are doing this thing. They're slowing down, they're wanting to see what happened in the accident. Okay, number seven, I... I, A lot of people identify with this one. By what age should you know what you want to do in life? A few amens on that one. Number six, a lot of people are going to identify with this one. Why does the line you're in always move the slowest? Have you been there before when you go to the grocery store and you strategically try to See which one is the shortest, and you go there on purpose because of that, but then all of a sudden there's some kind of issue with the the cashier or the checkout. There's some kind of problem, and it takes forever. Number five, do animals really have a sixth sense? Hmm. So we've all heard about dogs, some dogs that can supposedly sniff out cancers, and other animals that can supposedly detect and kind of have a sense if there's going to be an earthquake and those kinds of things. So people want to know, do animals really have a sixth sense? Okay. Number four apparently was for all those, all of us Michiganders. If you're watching online from a cold place, you're really going to be able to identify with this one as well. Notice what it says. Why does summer zoom by and winter drag on forever? Amen. Amen. Honestly, I'm already mourning because I feel like summer is almost over, and I like summer. Number three, this is a pretty serious one now. 
turning a corner. Can a marriage survive betrayal? I've seen. I've seen some. Number two. This one's kind of funny now. Why do married folk begin to look like one another? (laughs) Amen. You begin to finish each other's sentences, and sometimes, some ways, through behaviors and things that you do, you kind of begin to look like one another. And last but not least, number one question, according to Reader's Digest, can love really last a lifetime? What do you say? Amen. I hope so. I hope so, because I am in it to win it. So I'm not sure if you noticed a certain mechanism taking place in your own mind or not, but when I asked a lot of those questions, you already began to dialogue and answer a lot of those questions in your own mind. Isn't that the truth? Why is that? Because questions beg for resolution, right? I mean, whenever you hear one of these deep, universal, existential questions, you just kind of lean forward. You go to the edge of your seat. There's something within you that needs to hear the answer for those really tough questions. By the way, that's why I'm really, really excited about this brand new sermon series that we're starting today called, I Wonder What the Bible Says About Blank, where we're doing, where we've done exactly that same thing. We surveyed our local campus community. We surveyed you watching online, and we asked you, I wonder what the Bible says about blank. What is it that you want to know from the Bible? And boy, did you begin to send in your submissions. You sent in some of your most personal, some of your most pressing, some of your most difficult, some of your most existential questions, and we have covenanted in this summer series to answer all of them from the Bible. And so let me just tell you this right now. You're not going to want to miss any of the messages in the series. Every single one of them are very, very compelling. Why? Because they're coming from questions that you asked yourself. So without further ado now, are you ready to discover what the fifth most requested topic was that you sent in? Are you ready for it? All right. Here we go. I wonder what the Bible says about... The end times. Now, did that surprise anybody at all? A lot of you were really wanting to know about the end times. And some of you, a lot of you, most of you just put in end times, end times, end times, end times. So a lot of submissions just had those two words literally. But then some of you got a little bit more specific. And some of you are wanting to know, for example, is America going to start a nuclear war in the end times? That's a good question. A lot of you are wanting to know about the function and the role of the latter rain in the end times. That's a good question. A lot of you are wanting to know about a lot of the different time prophecies pertaining to the end time and pertaining to the second coming. Those are all really good questions. But here has been my task. I have had to basically say, okay, out of this overall theme of the end times, let me pick some kind of sliver that addresses kind of the core need in that question that most people are having. And so here is what I've chosen to address today. How to survive the end times. How to survive the end times. And I did not use that word survive by accident because believe you me, if we really examine the evidence and some of these things happening in the end times, I think you would agree with me that it causes us to be a little bit sober, doesn't it? 
It causes us to straighten up just a little bit and all of a sudden become a little bit more serious because there's a lot of stuff happening in the end times. Some of them are even perhaps a little bit scary. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to present, I'm going to present these two sides of the battle. So we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the enemy's side and his horde, if you will. And then we're going to spend some time looking at God's side and what that looks like. And then we're just going to ask that question in the midst of that. Well, how are we to survive? What can we do to survive the end times? You got it? You understand where we're going? You ready? Let's jump in. Here we go. So allow me then. To submit into evidence, exhibit number one on the enemy's side. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. Exhibit number one is nothing less, nothing more than a fearsome-looking dragon. Notice what it says in the scripture. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. And we can stop right there. We don't have to read anything else that goes past that because just within those three descriptive words, we have this horrifying, horrifyingly fearsome beast. So let's examine it just a little bit, shall we? First of all, he says, I mean, here's John the Revelator, John the Apostle. He's receiving in vision and he's trying to choose the best word to identify, to describe what he's seeing. And he says, you know, that's a, a dragon. By the way, literally, a dragon means some kind of large serpent-like beast. And so here he's saying this large serpent-like beast that has an ability to fly. And he says, yep, that's, that's a dragon. Now, let me ask you this. When we talk about serpents in the Bible, does this make you think about anything else? You think this might be a reference, perhaps, to anything else that happens towards the beginning of the Bible? Any other serpents in the beginning of the Bible? Yeah, remember Genesis chapter 3, the Bible describes this serpent who is cloistered within a tree, seemingly because he had the ability to fly and he got up there. But now all of a sudden we have a different kind of beast. There are vestiges, if you will, of that first one, but now it is different in nature, isn't it? All of a sudden, it seemingly gained satanic strength and satanic power. And now what once was a serpent, a beautiful serpent, now has transformed somehow through time, through the power of sin, if you will, into nothing more and nothing less than a fearsome dragon. But then the Bible continues, and it gives us more information about this dragon. I mean, what's this other word, descriptive word? It says, what color is this dragon? It's a red dragon. So red, the color of blood, the color of warfare, the color of violence, the color of oppression. This is now helping us to understand a little bit about the character of this dragon. It is not a benevolent creature. It does not have good things in store for you. It is pure and the personification of evil, in fact. It is a red dragon. But then the scripture continues. And John the Revelator is looking, he says, whoa. In fact, this is an enormous red dragon. Now come back with me to the definition that we talked about a few seconds ago about a dragon. The definition for a dragon 
already is an exceptionally large serpent-like creature. Are you with me? You got that, church? But now notice what he's saying. He's saying, wait a second. Dragons already are really large creatures. But he says, this, this is an enormous dragon. In the Greek, a mega dragon. This is kind of the daddy of all dragons who's looking at it and is filling up his entire screen. So exhibit number one. Please accept it into evidence. He sees an enormous red dragon. We don't have to go any further. If we do, it almost ends up sounding like some kind of horror movie and some kind of nightmare because this thing actually has seven heads. And the description continues and talks about how fearsome it is and how it just wants to kill and to destroy. So exhibit number one, we have a fearsome-looking dragon. Shall we continue? Exhibit number two. Here we have, in Revelation chapter 13, a beast that has the power to mimic miracles of God. So Revelation chapter 13, turn with me there in your Bibles, please. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. And it reads, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. By the way, in Revelation chapter 13, all of a sudden we find introduced two different beasts. At the beginning of Revelation chapter 13, we find this beast that's coming out of the sea. And then at the halfway mark of Revelation 13, we have this other beast that we're going to talk about now that's coming out of the land. And he's described very interestingly. He says he has two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He is seemingly animated or controlled or speaks on behalf of this beast power, the prior beast power. Verse 12, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Hmm, That's interesting. We don't have time to talk about that right now. We're going to keep going. Verse 13, and he performed great and miraculous signs. Now we're getting, I mean, this is really, really important. So this beast is performing great and miraculous signs. And did you know this is the kind of language that's used to attribute to the miracles of Jesus? Right? When we read the Gospels, we read about the great miracles that Jesus did. And all of a sudden here, this second beast creature is now doing miracles that make us think about Jesus almost, or almost in the name of Jesus, as it were. But then as if to signify the climax of the miracles, as if to signify the ultimate miracle, notice what he does. Even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in a full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived how much of the earth? He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So here is John. Come back with me. Here's John, the apostle, and he's seeing this in vision and he's seeing this beast do these great and wondrous miracles. And all of a sudden, he does this amazing miracle. He sees fire coming down from heaven. And all of a sudden, if you're John, the apostle, your mind is going to at least two different places. The first one is in 1 Kings chapter 18 and Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember that story? There was Elijah... Idolatry had proliferated under the reign of King Ahab, the Israelite king. 
And all of a sudden, Elijah says, you know what? Enough is enough. God's people must take a stand. So he said, we're going to do a test and determine who is the true God. So he says, call all the prophets of Baal. And we're going to have two sacrifices. And we're going to have two bulls on there. So he tells the prophets of Baal, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. And wherever fire comes down on whosoever sacrifice, that one is the true God. You catch that? So deal, deal, everybody good? Everybody's good. So the prophets of Baal, they're saying, okay, Elijah, deal, let's do it. So they begin praying and they begin incantating their incantations and nothing is happening. So Elijah gets a little bit smart with him and says, maybe your God fell asleep. You know, maybe, maybe he left. And they're doing this all day long. And finally, the time for the evening sacrifice approaches. Elijah says, finally, it's God's time now. Elijah gives this simple prayer as recorded in the scripture. And all of a sudden, supernatural fire from heaven rains down, consumes all of the sacrifice, also consumes all the water that was put into the trench around the sacrifice and left it bone dry. Why is this significant? Because by fire was the true God going to be identified. And all of a sudden, all the prophets of Baal said, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. Everybody's looking at the supernatural miracle and said, the Lord, he is God. Whoa. And then John, the apostle, is saying, okay, this kind of sounds like what happened back there in Elijah's day. And all of a sudden, he's thinking about at least something else that he himself experienced. You guys remember that story in Acts chapter 2? The apostles, the, the disciples are there praying. They're gathered together in the upper room. And the Bible says that a mighty wind began to blow into that place. And all of a sudden, supernatural fire from heaven came into that room and kind of sat upon their heads in the forms of tongues of fire. Very interesting. And all of a sudden, these fishermen and these disciples of Jesus, all of a sudden, they had the power to do that which they could not previously do. That is to speak in other foreign languages. And all of a sudden, they said there's, there was Arab Jews. There's Jews from all over the world gathered together in Jerusalem. And they're watching Peter, that, like the, the, the fisherman, the country, the country boy fisherman, right? They're, they're watching him. And he says, this seems to be of God. We know Peter. We know that he doesn't have that ability to speak that language. This is definitely of God. And people were so convinced that this was of God that the Bible records that 3,000 people were baptized on that one day. Okay, so let's take it back. So what does this mean now? What is it that the, the disciple John, the apostle John, is seeing here in vision? What does that mean? Evidently, this second beast is doing power, is doing miracles that are so convincing that people are actually going to believe that they are of God. And what does the Bible say? It's going to seemingly deceive just about the entire planet. Did you catch that? It's going to be so convincing that most people on earth are going to say, yep, that means that that is the true God. That means that that is the one that we should worship. And in, in his satanic glee, he will accept that worship. 
Now, I could go on and on, and there's lots of things that the book of Revelation talks about, but I think we've kind of had enough about the devil's side. What do you say? Enough of that. Now let's look at God's side. And let's just think about this for a moment. What we should expect to see on God's side is something quite formidable. Isn't that the truth? Because the enemy's side is certainly very, very well equipped, strong, powerful. And so we should expect to see God's church as also represented in a powerful way. After all, we often use military language, don't we? In our hymns, the battle cry of the republic, we're going to go marching on, we're going to go conquering on. We use this powerful kind of language, but the truth is we deceive ourselves. Because the image of the church in the end times is not some battle-hardened warrior that wins on the basis of skill. No. The image of the church in the end times is not some Goliath of a creature that bashes and gets victory by virtue of its strength. No. Do you want to know what God's end time image and metaphor of the church actually is? Turn over. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This is a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman. A what? We're expecting to see some now equally formidable opponent, but all of a sudden, I said, a great and wondrous sign of heaven. A woman. Clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And it's not just a woman, church. Listen now. This is a woman in her most vulnerable state. She's pregnant. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Well, that doesn't seem like good news. The image representing God's church is a pregnant lady signifying her vulnerability. She's completely outnumbered. She's completely outgunned. So here's the question that we have to wrestle with. How are we going to survive the end times? What are we going to do to survive the end times? I have some really bad news for you, church. I'm sorry. There's nothing you can do. I'm sorry. There's nothing you can do. Did you hear me? Church, listen. There's nothing you can do. Completely overwhelmed, outnumbered, seemingly probably outmaneuvered by the enemy. There's the devil as a dragon, these two beasts, all of his horde, his evil horde. And here we have a woman, a pregnant woman, clothed with the brilliance of the sun and all of her simplicity. There's nothing you can do. But yet, within 
the description of this woman is something that gives us a glimmer of hope. There's so many different things in which she's arrayed, and we don't have time to get into all the symbols, but I just want to point out at least one of them. The Bible says she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. In the Greek, it's a Stephanos crown. That's a crown that's given to those that have been victorious on the other side of a battle. And so here's the question, the logical question. How in the world is this woman going to preemptively, seemingly claiming victory when she's faced with the devil himself through this dragon and all of these beasts. And here she is standing tall. She's saying, I know I'm going to go through some stuff, but I'm already claiming victory. How can she do that? You know why? This woman has a husband. Did you catch that? This woman has a husband that just happens to be the greatest warrior in the universe. In fact, this husband of hers, this great warrior, promises to take care of her. Can I show you in in our last few minutes some of the ways in which her husband is going to be taking care of her? First, and this is, this is God's promise towards us because we understand, of course, that this woman represents God's church, which is us, people. So if you're worried about the end times, if you're concerned about the end times, receive this now as God's word to you. First of all, God will provide for your needs in the end times. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Notice what it says. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. How many say amen? So I'm going to take care of my wife. A finger will not be laid on my woman, on my wife. I'm taking care of her. In fact, three different times, just within this own chapter, Revelation chapter 12, we have the dragon continuing to attack this woman. But every single time, God comes through supernaturally and protects and provides for the woman. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 16 says, He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will what? His water will be sured. When the end of time comes and all of a sudden all your resources are depleted and you have nothing left with which to provide yourself, all of a sudden have no fear because God will provide for his church. It says your bread, you're going to have it. The water that you need, you're going to have it. It's not going to be a seven course meal, but you're going to have everything you need. Amen. In the same way that God supernaturally provided for Elijah in the wilderness. Remember that? God commanded a raven. He said, you, raven, you take care of my guy. So this raven goes and every day brings him bread and meat. In the same way that God took care of Elijah in the wilderness. In the same way that God took care of his church, the Israelites in the wilderness, and showered upon them manna every single way. So God will take care of us in the end times. 
Now, let me ask you a question, church. Will the church, will we go through some stuff in the end times, yes or no? Oh, yes. There will be some persecution. There will be some difficulties. There will be some trials. But praise God, hallelujah, the promise is that God will take care of his church. Second of all, God will infuse your witness in the end times. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. Notice what it says. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. I love that. For it will not be you speaking, but whom? But the spirit of your father speaking through you. So when those times come and you're brought before the kings and the councils and the people and the senate or wherever, God will supernaturally give you the words to say. Now, let me just clarify something really quickly. Because a lot of people interpret this verse and they think, well, okay, since God's going to be there and God's going to hook it up for me, as it were, in the end times, that means I can just kind of, you know, relax and do my thing. And, you know, I'm totally fine right now. Let me ask you a question. When is the time to prepare for the battle? It's before the battle starts. Isn't that the truth? Now is the time in which we need to be hiding God's word in our heart. Now is the time in which we need to be consecrating our souls and our family to God. Now is the time. It's not when that time of difficulty comes and all of a sudden you say, okay, all right, God, now I'm good. Now I'm ready. Okay, let's do this. No, no, no. Now. Today, notice what it says here in John chapter 14, verse 26. It says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance those things that you've already put there. Did you catch that? Yes, God's going to give you the supernatural argumentation that will confound the people you're before. But that means that right now, we need to be spending time with God. We need to be consecrating ourselves to God. Matthew chapter 4, the temptations of Jesus. You guys know that story? The devil tempts him. He says, you're looking pretty weak. Why don't you just command that those stones be turned to bread? And what did Jesus do at that moment? Did he say, hold on, devil. I've got a good one for you. Hold on. Hold on, give me just a minute. Let me give you a good uh, promise. Hold on, I got, I'm going to find one. Hold on. Did, did, did Jesus do that? No. This man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he had hid God's word in his heart, and so because of that, he was able to surmount and stand up and resist those temptations. All right, number three, God will protect you in the end times. I love this scripture, Psalm 91. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, 
Even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. At the end of earth's history, according to the book of Revelation, are there plagues that are going to fall on this earth? Yep. Some of them sound pretty gnarly, too. But will God supernaturally protect his church in the midst of all that? Amen. He will. All right, fourth and final one. God will rescue you in the end times. Revelation chapter 19. There at the very back of the book of Revelation, notice what it says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. Who are we talking about now? This is Jesus himself. Now notice verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Can I talk to the men for just a moment, please? All the men. Please, I need your attention. I need you to imagine something with me for just a moment. Imagine with me your beloved. Now, some of you are married. Some of you may not be married anymore. Maybe your beloved is no longer with us. Some of you have yet to be married, but you can still imagine perhaps a future beloved. Some of you have a a girlfriend or perhaps you are engaged. Men, let me ask you a question. Imagine your beloved. Now imagine someone harming your beloved. Imagine someone trying to hit your beloved, your wife, your woman. What do you do? You sit back and say, oh, okay, there goes my wife. She's getting harmed and hurt. What do you do, men? Oh, Oh, you know exactly what you would do. Now, let me up the ante just a little bit. Now imagine that perhaps your kids are also there. They might not be young anymore, but they're still your babies. Isn't that the truth? Imagine that your babies, your kids are there, and this same person is not only harming your wife, but also hurting and wanting to punch and just go after your kids. Men, listen to me. What do you do? I heard Dr. Zimmerman, he said, take him out. I've already told this to my wife. I think I've told this to you before. I'll say it again. I said, honey, if anybody ever tried to harm you or our boys tried to abuse you in any way, I would spend the rest of my life in jail. (laughs) I'm sorry if that disturbs some of you. I've I've already confessed it now ahead of time, okay? 
Because there's no way I'm allowing that to happen. I will not go down like that without a fight. If a bear appears out of nowhere and we're hiking, I'm standing in the front. I'm going to take down that bear. Men, another question for you, please. Men. Okay. Is what I just said, is that unique to me? No. You feel that too, don't you? You would do the exact same thing, wouldn't you? Why? Because placed within the heart of every man is a warrior to protect his family. Nobody, nobody dare harm your family. And so if we, being evil and sinful, think like that, and we have this thing inside of us that we will do whatever to protect our family, now imagine the pure and the perfect heart and the love of Jesus. And notice the image in Revelation chapter 19. Please don't miss this. It's at the very end of earth's history. His wife has gone through a lot. And it seems almost as if his wife will be destroyed and taken down. And what's the image that we see of Jesus? His galloping. On a horse. He's going as fast as he can. Notice 14. Says the armies of heaven were following him. Do you catch that? Saying, it's time, mount up, let's go. The church, my wife, is in danger, let's go. The good news. Jesus promises to provide for you. Jesus promises to infuse your witness supernaturally. Jesus promises to protect you in the end times. And yes, Jesus promises to rescue you in the end times. But church, let me just say one last thing. There's a condition. There's a caveat. It's really important. You have to be married. Did you catch that? I don't mean you have to be married in an earthly way. In other words, his coming back for his wife, his coming back for his bride, you have to, have, you have to be part of that. You have to have identified. Say, yes, I am your church. I identify with you. Because that is who Jesus is coming back to rescue. He's not going to rescue some other woman. Are you with me? He's coming to rescue his wife, his woman. So if you want to receive all of those miraculous and supernatural provisions that Jesus offers you, you have to be married. Pull out your connect card, please. Inside your bulletin is a little card that looks like this. Every single week at Pioneer, we challenge and encourage everyone to take some kind of next step in their walk with God. It doesn't matter if you're a long-time member. It doesn't matter if you're a first-time guest. We believe there's some kind of next step that you can make today. Just put your name on the front, your email, contact information. But now turn to the back of the card, and I want to walk you through a few of these options here. The first one says, I want to strengthen my marriage in order to be ready for the end times. In other words, some of you are 
baptized Christians. You're part of the family of God already. But maybe in your heart you're saying, wait a second, maybe there's some areas in my life in which I need to deepen that relationship with Jesus. Maybe there's some things that I can do to work on my marriage, as it were. If that's you here this morning, why don't you check that off? Second, I want to become married, quote-unquote, through baptism in order to be ready for the end times. If you have never been baptized before, what in the world are you waiting for? Do not delay one moment longer. If you've been praying for a sign, this is your sign. You need to be baptized. Plain and simple. What is coming in the future is not to be messed with. But praise God, if we entrust ourselves and if we commit our lives to him, he says, I'm going to protect you all the way. I'm going to protect my wife. So if you've never been baptized before, if you've never made that public confession of your love for Jesus, you need to do that. Third, I want to receive more information about attending Unlock Revelation in the fall. You know, we just barely, this is not even an introduction into the book of Revelation. There's so much there. But in the fall, we have two evangelists. They're going to be walking us through the book of Revelation to unlock it, unseal it. It's going to be really good. If you want to learn more about these symbols, just check that off. And we'll send you some more information about that. So now I want to pray with you and pray for this decision that God is working out on your heart right now. Let's bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you for every single person that's here today. I believe your spirit is here with us. I believe your spirit is moving in this place. Your spirit is moving online to people watching. And they're saying, is it me, Lord? Do you want me to be, be baptized? Yes. If you've never been baptized, you must be baptized if you're watching online as well. So, Father, just give people now the courage and the boldness to do that which you have called them to do. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.